it was my take on Lana Del Rey. I don't have that whisper baby voice. I guess I, I don't know what you're summertime, referring to. Summertime movies. So uh, I guess we'll start with you. <laughs> I hope someone listening gets gets that. Oh, there's no way that's making it into the podcast. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, Midsommar in San Diego. Yes, that is correct. Cassidy Robinson, the Midsommar. Pioneer Days. Is that a th- is that the, around the same time? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. And today we're going to be talking about uh, Pixar's Luca. Uh, Keith will be doing a solo review of the new Fast and the Furious movie, F9, or... F9. F9. And at the end of the podcast, we will be going over The Princess Bride, a classic film, 1987. I've never seen it. It was on my list of shame. Now I've seen it. Um, And we'll talk about uh, what a 35-year-old has to say about The Princess Bride, having seen it. I'm excited. I actually rewatched it today mm-hmm. so i could like go into this with fresh eyes so uh i don't know i that i'm excited to see what you think about it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i watched it and i also watched some uh youtube reactors watch it <laughs> okay i feel like that's cheating a little bit not sure. really i just wanted to see it through somebody else's eyes so to be able to kind of like gauge the the full, like you know, the yeah, as close I, I as possible. That's kind to of a, cheating. Have your own fucking opinions, guys. I mean, I do, I I do, and I did. Uh, we'll get to it. But um, first, I wanted to talk about before we get into everything. Um, it's that time of the year again, or it's 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 uh, you know, it's like the like the brood X that comes about every what ten years, sure. seven years or so. Okay, the Kinkadas. That was supposed. That was a big story that kind of went away, but. Every about two years or two and a half years, uh, Quentin Tarantino does the press circuit and then gets in a bunch of trouble for things he says. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The are, are you referring specifically to the Bruce Lee controversy? The reignited Bruce Lee controvers- yeah. controversies, so for, um, for among others. You, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, uh, was it? Uh, would have been 2019 mm-hmm. uh, once upon a time in Hollywood came out and there is a sequence where his character Cliff Booth sort of goes toe to toe with a fictionalized version of Bruce Lee. Right. Uh, at the time um, he got a lot of criticism uh, for his portrayal of Bruce Lee uh, specifically from Bruce Lee's Bruce Lee's daughter uh, now, Quentin Tarantino is putting out a, a novelized version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which that in and of itself is interesting and could be its mm-hmm. own story. Um, but with the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, of course, there's m- sort of more descriptors that go into it. Um, you know, certain things are different from the movie. Certain things are the same. Uh, certain but- passages are extended or longer. Yeah, yeah, but uh, 
and and I've heard by you know a lot of reviews that it's it's a very different experience in watching the movie. So I am uh, vaguely curious about it. Although mm-hmm. it's been a while since I've read a, a wordy think, uh, novel like that. Right, right. I think Jennifer Jason Lee does the audiobook. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I might check that out. Yeah, but uh, so. Quentin Tarantino, like you said, is doing press junkets to promote the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book. Um, he was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast. He's uh, that's actually kind. Of, I think this is interesting. It's like usually when he does the press tours, he does the you know all the nightly shows, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he might do like a traditional junk. Well, he he will definitely do traditional junkets where you just get five minutes and you know whatever you what's your yeah. favorite color and then you have to move along um but now sure, that, i mean that in and of itself is like a dying a it's dying a nightmare breed. nobody likes doing them neither the neither the critics nor the reporters or the people in the movies nobody likes press junkets they're and nobody really reads they're them awful that much. at best you might get a couple usable clips for epk later on what i thought was interesting is this this particular tour um He's mostly doing podcasts and it could be because of the COVID thing. It could be for a lot of things. I mean, I, I don't know if they're even doing junkets like they used to mm-hmm. at, at this point in time. And the podcast thing is, you know, for me, far more interesting because you get more time. Um, the yeah, long form it, interviews kind of taken over. Like, I, yeah. I, and press, potentially, yeah. I think you're going to get a lot more viewers and listeners because podcasts like the Joe Rogan podcast or like WTF with Mark Marin, which he did both, and the Dak Shepard podcast. I've listened to all of them, uh, you know, uh, range anywhere from, uh, you know, a couple million listeners. So, yeah. uh, so when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, uh, Joe Rogan being a fighter. Mm-hmm. Really wanted to get into the Bruce Lee stuff. And so he starts talking about that. And. Yeah, I haven't um, actually listened to the the podcast yet. I, I've heard, right. you know, like a couple. You've seen the, you've seen the clips, or you've seen, yeah, the, yeah, um, which are of course out of context and and everything. And, right, um, right, right. But you've seen the I controversial am, bits. I am curious takes. what you thought about kind of what he said. Well, I've, here's the thing. I've, I've obviously I've been a fan of Tarantino's for a long time. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily a fanboy because I'll say there are movies of his that I like more than others and whatever. Um, and there's certain things about even the movies of his that I love that I'll criticize. But I think, and we talked about this when the movie came out, that there's as time goes by more and more and more, people there's a certain demographic of the internet that uh, is really tired of him and really is kind of looking to take take him down. Yes. On whatever they can. And there too, you know, there's some amount of stuff there you can get into if, if that's your mission in life. But I think I kind of understand Quentin Tarantino on a level that um, some reviewers and some journalists might not. And that I understand that if he wasn't a millionaire right now making a bunch of movies, um, yeah. he would be that guy in the comic shop that just talks a little bit too much and everybody like kind of entertained and you have those like big what ifs, uh, you know, arguments with. And then um, I know there's someone from our old local comic book shop who I know like exactly who you're talking about. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but everybody who's been to a comic book shop has that. Yes. I right. know. I know. Quentin Tarantino. It, it, 
it's a specific person, but it's also an archetype. Right. Quentin Tarantino is a fantastically talented writer and director, um, but he's also kind of a spaz. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's all this stuff about what he says about Bruce Lee. And I will say with, if you listen to the Joe Rogan podcast, especially of the ones he's done, um, cause they go into that more. He does seem to have a beef that goes beyond, that goes beyond just, you know, this is my take on Bruce Lee. Sure. Like it, it, it kind of always comes back to like, no, listen, these are the sources I've read and this is what I think. And everybody else has rose colored glasses about this guy. But what I, what you're seeing in the press and, you know, I'm maybe I'm being too, uh, uh, generous. Maybe I'm being too generous, but with my interpretation of what's happening here, but um, what I'm seeing in the press is people are really trying to like racialize it and they're making it like, oh, Quentin Tarantino, like he doesn't recognize Bruce Lee as an American and they, you know, anti-Asian yeah, yeah, yeah. hate that's going on right now, blah, blah, blah. Because that's, mean, also, that's the it, clickier story. But here's here's what I think is actually happening. That's the Twitter spin on it. For that's the sure. Twitter spin. Yeah. Uh, here's what I think is actually happening. I think he's just that guy in the record store who n- will argue until he's blue in the face, no matter how many people say otherwise, that the Beatles are overrated. Yeah. I don't think, and you know, and, and, and I don't think that he like actively hates Bruce Lee as a person or even uh, hates all of his movies or whatever. I just think his based upon his taste he's just he's just that guy that that's his thing he's like no there's all these other people why why do you always fixate on this one guy i i think it's also like bruce lee as an icon right yes has has, it has extended to kind of this mythic status there's a there's a certain era of hollywood uh where you know like like look at marilyn monroe Mm -hmm. right i think she's a great example um she she was a very troubled person uh she had a lot of addictions she had a lot of um she had a lot of issues that fame brought her and when we talk about marilyn monroe that comes up but when you see icons of marilyn monroe you see the pictures of the dress and you see the andy warhol pop art and you see Mm -hmm. you know because she's an incredibly gorgeous woman you see this sort of myth mythologized version of this person. Yeah. She, and she's I, above or, um, all of that, like tabloid stuff from the time. Exactly. Now she's and, just and iconography was, from the era. I can see uh, uh, definitely a certain level of that with Bruce Lee. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of, you know, like posters with Bruce Lee quotes and, and um, he, he is sort of, elevated beyond just right. being a person and for and a lot of people he was their introduction into the world of martial arts sure and into into the world of you know even just foreign cinema and here's level. the thing i'm not even saying he doesn't deserve this mythological status yeah uh, I've, i think he, it makes sense i don't have as big of opinions on bruce lee either way um I, uh, I, I, but I, I understand why he's an icon and I understand, especially in the world of sports and in the world of fighting and, and, uh, fight choreography and all that stuff. Absolutely. Um, I I definitely get it. But I can also see how someone could see that I, that icon status 
and have their own interpretation of, of Bruce Lee as a person mm-hmm. and want I, I, that. I, I kind of agree with you. I think that that Tarantino probably thinks he's trying to set the record straight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just I, a weird it, hill to die on. Is, and But here's the thing. Tarantino has, I don't give a fuck money. Oh, for uh, sure. Yeah. He, he's planning on making one more movie before he retires. It, mm-hmm. it, this controversy isn't going to do anything to his career. No. You know, it's, it's, it means nothing to him. So he can say whatever asshole opinion he has. Right. And whatever, you know, he doesn't give a fuck what people are saying about him on Twitter. Because- he's not on Twitter. <laughs> Look. Here's here's the deal is when you work at a magazine or you work at a trade or something like that and you're covering entertainment news 24/7 um you're going to pick up any kind of crazy headline you can get. So and you're and then once to... one person does it, then it gets picked up by all the others and exactly. it just amplifies and, and once that spin is on it that people are responding to then you know what's getting right. the clicks then you know what's getting the response. So, and to some extent, you know, the contra- this little his extracurricular controversies outside of just the content of his movies have always been part of his news cycle. It's always been part of his, you know, his release cycle, whether it was the use of the N-word in Jackie Brown or whether it was, you know, the violence of Kill Bill or whatever, you know. Yeah. It it it, or his support of BLM uh, around the time that Hateful Eight came out. There was all sort. He always has a thing that kind of follows him when he releases one of these movies. So I don't think it's that important. I do. All, all I, I do recommend to- that people listen to the podcast because I think it's interesting stuff, and they talk about a lot more than just that. I, I just wanted to say I think I think he's just kind of a spaz. Yeah. And he just says things that he has strong opinions about that are maybe contrarian takes. I basically agree with you. I will also say if you don't jive with what he's saying mm-hmm. and that is perfectly valid, uh, that's fine. You know, like don't see his movies. You don't have, you know, you don't have to be a fan of Tarantino. If you, I guess I'm just saying people need to fucking get offline a little bit. And you know, right. like, I don't know. Hashtag touch grass. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's speaking of touching grass where we had a, we had a game. We had a thing that I prepared. I wanted to give some recommendations of our favorite summer movies. I mentioned um, at the beginning of the podcast that we're in the middle of summer and we did put a moratorium on jaws because we, it's the, I'm sure summer. it comes up. It's the ultimate summer movie. We've talked about it plenty. It's sort of a no duh. It's I want a summer to be movie. Able... These are summer dollars, right? <laughs> uh, the first summer blockbuster. Some people have said so. Obviously, Jaws. But we're gonna we're gonna try and give um, six other recommendations, three apiece. What is your first recommendation for summer movies? You're and ju- just for clarification, this the this means a movie that takes place during the summer or a movie that you most like to watch during the summer it elicits elicits those summertime vibes well i'm gonna list a more recent one that you teased at the beginning of the podcast uh midsommar i think is an incredible summer movie Mm -hmm. uh it, it is a horror movie that takes place 
uh, in the middle of summer, but it is like most of the horrific stuff is like out in the bright daylight. Um, you're out in the fields of Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's this beautiful like location. Like I would love, you know, aside from the weird cult, I would love to go to like that <laughs> campground and stuff. Right. Um, so yeah, this movie is, it's literally got summer in the title. It's pretty hard to beat as far as recent summer movies go. Have you watched it this summer? I haven't this summer. It's actually been a couple years since I've seen it. I wanted to make it like a yearly thing, but I haven't been able to so far. Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think for all the obvious reasons that works as a summer film for, for some reason, maybe it's because there's so much of the traditions of midsummer that we've sort of adopted into our Easter celebrations in oh, America that to me, it feels more like a spring movie, even though I the think title... you're just crazy. Uh, <laughs> it, it might also have to do with like, sometimes also the picture at the very beginning of like that snow shot. Right. Yeah. That, that, that big contrast in the, uh, the opening. Yeah. So I can see how maybe that's why it feels a little springy to you because it's mm. like you've got this extreme like weather coldness at the very beginning uh, and then it, you know, transitions to uh, to summer, which that transition from cold to warm is, you know. Yeah, maybe that's, associate with maybe that's doing it a little bit too. But yeah, I mean, excellent choice. Uh, my first one here, Tremors. Oh, okay. We can't talk about Jaws. We can talk about Tremors. So, yeah, B-movie horror film from the early 90s, Kevin Bacon. Small um, Texas community gets uh, attacked by giant worms underneath the ground. Um, The movie looks dry as a bone. Reportedly, it was actually kind of cold during the time that they filmed it, but you wouldn't know by watching it because it it looks like sweltering heat. Yeah. Like you could, you know, fry an egg on those giant rocks they're standing on. No, that's but, a good one. Yeah, I, I mean, everything's dusty and kind of westerny, and yeah, I, I, I just think it's a, it's an obvious kind of, and it's the movie structurally is taking a lot from Jaws, um, so it kind of like feeds into that, uh, that sort of uh, archetype as well. Yeah, I kind of forgot that movie existed for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, that's a good choice. All right, which one? I can't say the same about like the eight hundred sequels they've made since. I think there's now more Tremors. Here's the thing: directed DVD sequels than Land Before Time sequels. Ooh, that's a that's a tough question. Actually, they're they're (laughs) like neck and neck. Uh, Okay, my next pick. We we're only getting three. You say three apiece, and we can talk about our uh, you know what didn't make it or whatever after the honorable mentions. Yeah. all right. Uh, here's another really good one for me that I have watched a lot. Uh, Wet Hot American Summer. That was in my honorables. Yeah. Uh, it, so it is a spoof of camping coming of age movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's done by it's was made by a lot of the people who were involved with the sketch comedy troupe, The State. Mm-hmm. David um, Wayne directed. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it's playing on a lot of these like camp movie tropes. Mm-hmm. And so it obviously evokes that. It's called Wet Hot American Summer. It's, you know, this 
idea of a summer camp. Uh, but I also like I watch it more than the movies. It's kind of parodying because mm-hmm. um, it's really funny. It's a really enjoyable movie. Um, right. You know, it's so a lot like, breezier than those because it's all just absurdism the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And it uh, so it's like referencing there's there was this big like sort of camp genre summer movie in like 70s and 80s with stuff like meatballs and uh, mm-hmm. like Caddyshack and you know stuff like that and it's kind of I mean it's using all of those types of movies as sort of fodder right um, but I generally prefer it because I have more I don't know my humor sensibility aligns with that more yeah uh, it's it's kind of like those movies filtered through like the the airplane top secret mode yeah it's a little less punchliney than those like uh airplane i think you know like jokes per minute might right. still have the record for like most jokes in a movie or something right. um th- this is a little more like uh it's less like set up punchline jokes and more like we're just going to try to recreate this thing but in a humorous way right more for Uh, like the alt comedy set i guess yeah yeah Yeah. that's i guess a good simplification of it um but it's really funny i have seen it a bunch i've watched like the netflix sequels they're okay uh but the first one is in my opinion still the best that's where it's at yeah and that that movie was like a who's who of comedy at the time and stars that have yet, who were yet to be born. I mean, like, you know, like a young Bradley Cooper, Paul Rudd, when he was, you know, in between things, kind of Amy Poehler, Amy Poehler before she was on SNL. Yeah. Yeah. It is uh, a huge cast from Frasier is in it. Like, (laughs) uh, and there's a bunch of people that pop up later. Um, Mm -hmm. Joe Latrulio ended up, being a big part of the TV show Brooklyn Nine Nine, right? Well, he was from the state, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so I mean, also, almost all of those guys are in it. Ken and Marino, that, Ken yeah. Marino, yeah. Um, Chris Maloney, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a good one. It is. It's it's really really funny. All right, um, where do I want to go next? Okay, this one maybe this one's a little less off the beaten path. A little more off the beaten path. Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, okay, yeah. You obviously just, you just picked hot movies. Um, well, I, you know, weather the weather. I, I these are movies I wouldn't watch in the winter. I mean, I guess I could, but I wouldn't get as much out of them. I think of it as a summer film. Um, it's also kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a kind of a road movie per se. I mean, there's no like. You know, they're like hopping trains and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, you see multiple settings in the American South. Um, this kind of takes place like during the Dust Bowl era. Um, so the, the Coen Brothers film, sort of a musical to a certain extent. Um, and a, a really good one at that of like, a, you I know. I would say a, this is more of a musical than uh, Streets of Fire. <laughs> um, yeah, kind of, in, kind of music is used in a similar way. Um and uh, yeah, I just like everything about it, like the kind of the Southern Gothic Americana feel of it um, yeah. is uh, is approached in a really cool, interesting way. And ton of great characters, ton of 
funny dialogue as you'd expect from the Coen brothers. And uh, yeah, I just think like the, the it's, it's just a very sweaty um, summer mythological kind of movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you, if for those who haven't seen it, it's a modern retelling of the Odyssey, mm-hmm. um, but like a postmodern take on it. It's not like literal. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think this is a, again, a solid choice. Um, yeah, I can tell I'm taking it pretty literally of like movies that happen in <laughs> summer and you're just like movies that are sepia toned. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> all the movies I've mentioned so far do take place in the summer as well. All right. So what is your what's your last pick? God. Uh, OK. Do I want to go for something obvious or do I, I'm going to I think I'm going to throw out something that you wouldn't expect. Okay. Uh, I'm going to throw out point break. Um, You know what? List of shame. What? I've never seen point break. I've almost watched it a lot. That is going to load it up on the streaming to go for a while. And then I, I'd never pull the trigger. Well, the next that's happening soon. So be fucking ready. Um, (laughs) Point break directed by Catherine Bigelow. Keanu Reeves is this cop and he goes undercover to bust this gang of bank robbers. Pretty early on, he gets the idea that these guys are like surfers. They're kind of uh, uh, thrill seekers um, kind of thing. And so he goes undercover as like learns to surf. Um, It's basically the plot of Fast and Furious, but you replace street racing with surfing Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the general idea of it. Um, and I won't give away too much else. Um, and Patrick Swayze plays the uh, Patrick Swayze is in it, and it's just a really good fucking movie. Uh, I actually recently rewatched it, watched it last summer with Ashley, who'd never seen it before, mm-hmm. and I was surprised how into it she was. And and mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, it is summer as hell. It, it here. Here's the thing. It takes place in California. So, you know, it's kind of the land of eternal summer here. Right. Um, But because of that, because of all the surfing, because of all the stuff, it also has a very like sweaty vibe. Very like, uh, yeah. Uh, It's an older movie. Isn't it like, I want to say late 80s, early 90s. uh, But yeah, it is summertime as hell because the whole movie they're doing all these summer activities through throughout 91 really mm-hmm. oh shit i thought it was older than that um you've obviously seen the lost boys right yes uh so it has also a good of, summer movie yeah it is uh actually i didn't even think about it until i mentioned point break mm-hmm. because it has kind of similar vibes but like less horror y um, right but kind of like the same, you know, like the main character getting sucked into this world. And it's like, does he want to be a vampire? Does he not? Like, mm-hmm. um, so I think it operates on a similar level and I think it holds up about as well too. So cool. Um, yeah. If you haven't right. check out the original point break, not the weird remake they did like four or five years ago. I didn't see either. I'll just end it on a down note. Um, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, I knew you were going to say this. I almost said it just to take it away from you. Right. And it's almost as maybe almost as obvious as Jaws, but 
I think there are some there are some horror movies you can watch multiple times a year or multiple points of the year rather. And sure, you can watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre around Halloween. It'll work. But I think you get the most out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre between like now, like mid July to end of August when you are uncomfortably, miserably hot. I would say this is a good one to like transition to the Halloween season, like 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 September beginning of September. Yeah. Cause it's usually still pretty warm. Um, But yeah. So I notably, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when they filmed it, it was like like when they were filming the dinner scene and shit, it mm-hmm. was like 115 degrees or something. Yeah, um, I mean, of course, the movie was made for nothing. So they, you know, they didn't have like coolers or fans or anything. And, and they were like, filming all night to get these shots because they didn't have that much money to work with. And the so, lights were like making it way hotter to yeah. the point where... The guy who played Leatherface, like in interviews, says that like there were times when he genuinely wanted to kill like the the actress who was screaming. Um, right. And there were times because all of the uh, the the bones and, and d- dead meat that's lying around in the film was was contributed by local abattoirs. That meat was actually rotting on the table during those scenes. And, and yeah, the, the stench would get so bad. Or- that uh, actors between shots would have to go and throw up. Um, and you you feel all of that throughout the entire film. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, the movie's covered in flies and it's, it's that type of heat that if you stare at it long enough, it's like distorting the background imagery um, yeah, in waves. Sweltering. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the cows are, are, in the uh, you know in the shots in the background have their tongues hanging out because they can't deal with it and i think that all sort of contributes to the existential dread of the movie it's a movie that you you feel with all five senses uh that being said i don't necessarily glorify or condone filming in those conditions i understand it's a low <laughs> budget um but you know also I think there's this weird tendency to kind of glorify horror directors for making their casts go insane. Right. Um, and I don't think you necessarily need to do that to get a good movie. Um, you know, just, just saying, just throwing that out there. Right. That- well, I mean, if it's a movie that a lot of people have seen and it's well-revered and it's really well-made, but it was also an exploitation movie that was, that was funded by the mob. Sure. Yeah. And all the none of those actors even got paid to be in the movie. Really? Uh, when it was all said and done, no, because they the really shady uh, contracts that they signed to to get funding. Basically, um, Toby Hooper got a little bit of money. The mob got almost all of it. And of course, they couldn't like take it to court because it was with the mob. I didn't know that. That's interesting. So um, yeah, some people got some work off of it, but basically nobody really got paid to do that film. Um, but yeah, yeah I don't mean, make movies like that. You don't have to, but I think uh, given the conditions, it came out really well. And it is of course a horror classic. And I think an, uh, a ultimate summer film. Now, what are, what are some of the ones that didn't make it on, on your top three there? Uh, the one that I was debating at the end was uh, Friday, the part Friday the 13th part two specifically Mm. um Mm -hmm. i think of all the friday the 13th movies it's it's the best and uh it elicits the most of those summer camp vibes Mm -hmm. um it it is 
you know, for the first chunk of it, it is a summer camp movie. So uh, it, it is kind of a movie that Wet Hot American Summer would be parodying until the kids start dying. Right. Jurassic Park is another Steven Spielberg one that yeah. I think I get very summery vibes. It all takes place in Hawaii and just feels very summery. Um, uh, that along with Independence Day, obviously yeah. July 4th, um, fireworks, aliens, you know, welcome to Earth. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, I did want to give a shout out to one that I saw. I think we watched it this year or maybe it was last year during quarantine um, to, I think it was a Hulu original Palm Springs. Um, oh, I was that That's the one with um, Andy Samberg and yeah. Kristen Malati. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's like a groundhog day situation, um, but it all takes place in Palm Springs. Okay. And if you've never been to Palm Springs, it is about as summer as it gets. Right. Uh, also sweltering hot desert, but there's a pool everywhere you go. Right. Um, and they, you know, they're stuck in a time loop. So it just sort of feels like this eternal summer kind of thing. Okay. Um, that was one that I was like, Ooh, that deserves a shout out. Cause it's, it, I think a pretty recent one. It was really funny too. I enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned some of the ones that I, that I had on mine as well. Um, I'll just add uh Sandlot. Um, yeah. very, very easily could have made the list uh, as well as stand by me. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, uh, kids on bikes stuff that takes this. place during summer. Yeah. yeah. Um, cause the kids, they gotta be on the bikes. Sure. <laughs> it has to be good weather to do that. Uh, a goofy movie could have made the list. Oh, that's a fun one. Mm-hmm. I almost, I thought about Tiny Toons, how I spent my summer vacation. <laughs> I don't think like, that constitutes a movie, actually. Yeah, I was like, was that a real movie? I think that's like that a, like, like a 45 a minute special or something. Episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Days and Confused. It was technically the first day of summer, the last day of school. Uh, sort of in the same ballpark. Adventureland is a movie that I really like. And uh, Do the Right Thing. But like oh, Jaws. Yeah, I, do the right thing is on a lot of lists. I almost mentioned um, Friday and Die Hard with a Vengeance as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because Die Hard with a uh, Vengeance to me stands out specifically because the first Die Hard is very much a Christmas movie. Yeah. And this one very specifically takes place like, you know, it's one of those hottest days of the year. So everybody's going crazy movies. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and get into the reviews. And I'll have you start us off with also, uh, let us know your favorite summer movies. If we didn't mention them, audience engage with us at twitter.com and or email. Uh, yes. At MacGuffin pod. If you want to tell us your favorite summer movies, Keith, tell us a little bit about F nine. F nine, uh, colon the fast saga, as it is referred to on IMDb. So this is the latest installment in the fast and furious franchise um in this one dom and uh letty are kind of like retired they're kind of like living off in a farm by themselves until the crew rolls up the old crew with a mysterious mission kurt russell character mr nobody sent this like transmission about this uh they were transporting this MacGuffin box and it got intercepted, so they uh, they get attacked by all these guys. 
it seems like this was some kind of a setup, some kind of a trap. And these guys are being led by what turns out to be Dom's younger brother, who is played by John Cena, um, mm. which is hilarious because John Cena's taller than Vin Diesel. And it's pretty obvious in a bunch of shots. Mm. Anyway, so this whole adventure kind of ties around this past event uh, where Dom's dad dies on this racetrack. And Dom has always blamed his younger brother. And there's like a lot of flashbacks to sort of like the street racing days, sort of building this uh, establishing this relationship of a secret brother that hasn't been mentioned for nine movies. Uh, (laughs) And so he's got this world ending device through all of this. He, uh, they find out that John Cena's character, uh, Jacob Toretto is being bankrolled by this German guy. And they've also captured Charlize Theron from the previous movie, um, Cypher. Right. Uh, Yeah. So they find out there's like two MacGuffin boxes and a code they have to get. There's this, you know, there's the adventure, Uh, but all of it sort of focuses on this, you know, what happens when Dom has to fight family because family is the strongest thing to him. Right. Um, Which isn't a bad premise. And, that setup alone is definitely where the meat of this movie lies, even though there's a bunch of retconning. I mean, this movie is basically like just retconning other stuff. Like they're introducing the secret brother um, spoilers. I don't, I don't think it's that much of a spoiler because it's in the trailer and every write up has been about the fact that Han is back from the dead uh, who notoriously died at the end of, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, the third movie. Um, right, which canonically takes place after at least Fast Five because Han was in that one. Yes, yeah. Not to mention Justin Lin is back as director who yeah. Justin Lin directed Fast uh, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. He also directed, I think, Fast Four and I think he directed up through Fast. I think he did almost all of them until the one that... Uh, did. James Wan. James Wan did. Yeah, one, yeah, I think was that Fast Seven. I yeah. don't know. I've only seen some of these movies, so yeah. I will say, I would uh, say by and large, the Fast franchise is Justin Lin's franchise. Yes, like I yeah. think his style, even when other directors have picked it up since, has been the been the the groundwork that everyone's working from. Yeah, because everybody says like it sort of started as a franchise with Tokyo Drift because I think people kind of right, not right off, but uh, I think that's sort of what established it as more of like an action movie franchise than just sort of about, well, maybe that was fast forward. I don't know. There's a nine of these fucking movies. Um, I would say that the, the, the bit, the, the franchise got its second win with fast five. I think uh, Fast and Furious three or Tokyo Drift, whatever. Yeah, that was kind of a cult that one was that one was yeah more of a cult following. Didn't do very well because it didn't have any of the stars from the first two. Um, and then Fast Four was sort of a low point. I think that one sort of came and went. Um, even though I think Lynn did both of those, but Fast Five is I think when that's when they were like basically these are Mission Impossible movies now. Yes, yeah, I did appreciate that this one 
because of the flashbacks, it definitely feels like it is trying to kind of go back to its roots a little bit, but also marry that with the espionage spy nonsense. Yeah. Um, but because of that, there is a lot happening in this movie. And in true Fast and Furious uh, fashion, most of it's ridiculous, but mm-hmm. that's what you're signing up for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, like the first 10 minutes, Dom like literally uses a rope bridge as a grappling hook for his car to swing between islands. It's right. nonsense. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the first 20 minutes are almost pure exposition. But as someone who's dipped in and out of the franchise, that was very helpful for me to know what was going on. I was like, oh, okay. You know, these movies are melodramas. They're very clear. Like, we're going to spell out we're good guys because of this. We used to be bad guys, but we're good guys now. Uh, your brother's a bad guy. We got to stop the bad guys. Like, they're very right. just base. Uh, right. you're, you're signing up for the extreme, you know, the ridiculousness, um, the stunts, the craziness. This one, you know, uh, notoriously, they do go to space. Uh, some of the crew and this isn't my favorite fast movie that I've seen. I appreciated the way uh, that they use flashbacks to kind of tell this story of the brother. Mm -hmm. I think all the stuff between John Cena and Vin Diesel basically works uh, because it's a wrestling plot. You know, it, it very much feels like that. Um, I think where this movie doesn't work as much is where I think it could have toned down on some of the spy stuff, to be honest. I think, I think this could have been a little bit more of a reset, a little bit more of a back to the roots. Mm -hmm. That's what worked the most for me. The smaller scale. Yeah. Because the stuff, not just drag racing, but maybe at least like bank robbing or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there was some drag racing and racing scenes in this uh, and that felt like the most sort of emotionally driven pun, not intended. I felt like the stuff that was being ridiculous was like, okay, well we have to top the last one, which that sort of been the motif going going forward. forward. But this movie is, you know, largely absent a lot of the other stars. Like The Rock isn't in it. Um, oh, really? Uh, J- Jason Statham isn't, you know, he passes this one, which that would have been a little weird because it is the one where Han comes back and he supposedly killed Han. Hashtag justice for Han. Uh, <laughs> and they had their own spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw. But because these movies have become so sort of critical mass. hmm now that we're sort of back to the core of like Vin Diesel and Ludacris and Tyrese, uh, it sort of feels like a spinoff on its own at this point. Right. Without the whole crew there. So I felt like, yeah, this one could have like, it could have benefited from taking a step back. Uh, It's a little overly long for my taste. I was Mm. starting to get a little like bored by the end. I was like, okay, like they are dragging this out. Yeah. So I think, you know, this might be another fast four situation. Um, I think this one ultimately will be kind of unremarkable as far as the fast saga goes. Yeah. I, I wish they had kind of reset a little bit more with the craziness. Okay. 
as an addition to the cast, because these these movies are basically like seasons of Dragon Ball Z, where whoever the villain was is, becomes a new hero in the next oh, one. Oh, yes. And, and uh, I guess slight spoilers if you are interested uh, uh i think this has the the quickest uh heel to face turn in in all of the movies right yeah um, they couldn't even wait a movie to do it yeah so yeah. obviously whenever they bring on a big action star they're basically signaling to the audience he's part of the family now so how do we like do we like john cena does he fit in with the rest of the crew oh i mean yes of course he does he he's yeah. John Cena being John Cena, you know, mm-hmm. like a charming muscle dude. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think he plays opposite of it. Like I said, the brother stuff surprisingly works the best to me because they just put the most sort of emotional core behind that. Um, yeah. And, and it's very fun seeing Vin and, and John play off of each other. I think he's more than a suitable sort of replacement for the rock. Um, I so is The Rock love... not doing these movies at all anymore, or is he just not on this one? I don't know. I mean, he's a very busy man, and there was notoriously uh, uh, sort of a butting of the heads between Rock and Vin Diesel, and that kind of resulted in Hobbs and Shaw. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so there was like a pretty big ego trip with the last, I think, couple fast movies. Um, I hope they kind of squash their beef, because... You know, I think for Fast Ten, we gotta Fast have the X. whole crew. Yeah, I mean, come on, we gotta have the whole crew. We gotta <laughs> have Hobbs. We gotta have Shaw. We gotta have. I mean, obviously, we can't bring Paul Walker back. Rest in peace. CGI um, face. No, I, we I, can deep fake him right into the movie. Here's the thing: they do. They there's even kind of a they try. Or to they have, could bring him back as a force ghost at the end. They try to give him a little bit of a presence. Like at the very, Mm. very end, you see his car drive up. I don't know. I think it's just like, let that go. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I don't know. I I feel like we don't need to go there. I I feel like they gave him a good send off. Let that be. But I, I missed the rest of the crew. I, I, I felt this movie felt a little empty and I hope for the next one, if, if we're going to be bigger, we got to have everybody. We got to have fast in game. All right. All right. Um, what do you give it? These movies are silly nonsense. Like yeah. it, it's wrestling soap opera, uh, uh, melodrama. So, you know, grading on a curve, I'd give it a B minus okay. for fast movies. Um, almost yeah. a C, C plus. Um, so that's kind of where I've been with them since about fast six on. Um, with, you know, some of them are more entertaining than others. I like certain characters like the Charlie Theron character and stuff. Yeah, she's a really good, uh, villain. But honestly, they, they kind of run together in my head. I can't exactly remember what happens in each of them. Um, I, I remember the, the last one I saw was the one with the submarine and this one, I felt like they couldn't, they didn't quite top that. Right. Yeah. Uh, Cause that one, there was like this fucking chase scene that felt like Mad Max on ice. Uh, mm-hmm. And this, they never quite even, even though they literally go to fucking space in this movie, <laughs> I, I feel like it just can never, it always felt a little, a little less than. 
Right. I mean, I always have fun watching them while I'm watching them, yes. but then they kind of evaporate right off of me as soon as I walk out of the theater. This is exact. I mean, yeah, this is exactly the same. I, I just felt the length on this one a little bit more than I have in the past. Right. Even more so than Hobbs and Shaw, if we're counting that. Uh, I mean, it's part, it's canon. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I liked Hobbs and Shaw more because again, like Idris Elba was such a fun villain as this literal, yeah. like yeah. super, superhuman thing. Yeah. Uh, Magic and, armor. I mean, yeah. John Cena, he's great too. I just, I, I don't know. I think this one just, it didn't quite have the magic of Fast's past. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about Luca then, which is the new film by Disney Pixar. This is a movie, it takes place in Italy, uh, into the, the islands sort of nearby. And there is a young boy, a uh, young fish monster boy named Luca who uh, lives in the sea and he is, you know, sort of nervous and anxious about the the surface because basically they live in a big, they live near a lot of like fishermen and stuff like that. And people who are, you know, who've caught glimpses of the sea monsters that live under the sea and there's, you know, tales about them and everything. And so some people want to hunt them. And he has uh, parents that are sort of helicoptery and telling him not to not to go too far out and not to leave without, you know, letting them know where he's going. And eventually he runs into um, another fish boy named Alberto, uh, voiced by uh, Jack Dylan Grazer. People might remember from the It movie. Um, oh, that's who that was. Uh, Luca is voiced by Jacob Tremblay. And... Uh, Alberto is a lot more sort of carefree and uh, lives on his own, does his own thing. And he kind of takes Luke out on these excursions into the surface and teaches him how to walk, teaches him how to ride a bike. And then, uh, you know, they become obsessed with this idea of like getting a Vespa, a Vespa scooter, which (laughs) seems to represent like freedom to them. Mm -hmm. And they find out that the village nearby is having this annual triathlon race, bike race, and the winner gets some amount of money and they hope to use this money to buy a cheap Vespa. While they're there, they run into Julia, voiced by Emma Berman, who is sort of a tomboyish gal with a dad who uh, he's a he's a chef and he, he makes a lot of seafood. Well, he's, he's also like the best fisherman in the village. Right. Uh, yeah. So he would be, you know, the, the type of person that Luca and, and Alberto would be the most afraid of. Uh, but they they need Julia's help to kind of uh, show them around and get them prepared for this race. Did, did you mention that when they're out of water, they look like humans? And then it, but if they touch any water like that, part of them looks like a fish boy. Right. That is important. So whenever they emerge from the ocean, they take upon a human form. And if, if they get wet at all, like the part of them that gets wet reveals their, their scales, it reveals their colors. So like if they get splashed by a fountain, their face will turn fish boy while the rest of their body will be, you know, like a human. There's a dryness factor that seems to matter sometimes in this movie. And yeah, so the, you know, there's this uh, preening egotistical biker there uh, named Ercole Visconti, um, who is their main competition and they're preparing 
to uh, to beat him in the spike race and, uh, you know, hopefully see more of the world together. At this point, Luca has uh, completely abandoned his ocean home because um, because his parents find out that he was running away every once in a while and uh, threatened to send him to live in the bottom of the ocean with his angler monster fish. His, his uncle. uncle. Yeah, uh, voiced uncle. by Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, so now the parents are kind of looking for him above ground uh, while they're preparing for this race. So, Luca, what did we think? So, uh, before before I get into the like the content of the story itself, um, I have to say, so was this Disney or was this Pixar? This is a Pixar. Okay. Well, Disney owns Pixar. It's both. Yeah, but there's still a difference. They they make the distinction like Encanto is going to be, you know, a Walt Disney animated feature. This is yeah. Pixar. Um, uh, yeah. So, I, but to start off, I just have to say that their animation skills are have become like otherworldly. It is like they have reached Super Saiyan God levels of... <laughs> Uh, CGI animation. This is, I, I mean, like it looks like claymation almost. Like it is, it's definitely very stylized. The look of it, yeah. Um, but like the water animation, just like I don't know. It, it's insane to me what they have been able to achieve artistically uh, through their animation at this point. Mm-hmm. Like every every movie is the prettiest movie they ever made. <laughs> Yeah, so this one took me kind of a minute to warm up to. Like at the beginning, it sort of feels like okay, he's boy Little Mermaid, like he because he's like finding all these human treasures and is like, oh, the human world, like I yeah. want to be up there. Uh, so at the beginning, I was like, well, this feels kind of derivative. Yeah, um, it feels kind of familiar. A little bit of a uh, finding Nemo in there too with the helicopter parents and yeah, yeah yeah once he emerges from the ocean and meets his friend Alberto uh, to me that's kind of when the movie starts and becomes mm-hmm. like like a movie like uh, because the, you know at that point it becomes you know very much just like coming of age summer movie uh, literally kids on pikes like we got it all. <laughs> Yeah, and, and from that point forward, I was I was pretty charmed by it. Their, you know, their little castle fort that they have, and then when they decide that they're going to go live in the big city, well, small fishing village, but to them a big city, mm-hmm. um, that's when I was like, oh, okay, this this movie's winning me over. Yeah, it's it's very charming. Uh, 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 I didn't really I didn't really have a lot of problems with this one. Okay. I thought it was aggressively mediocre. Oh, okay. Yeah. I had almost no feelings toward or for this movie. To me, this felt like it could have been maybe one a cute Pixar short. Uh, oh, as far as right. come, what there is, hot. as far as what there is content wise, um, there's just not that much there. And it feels like they stretched what could have been a cute short into an hour and a half of meh. Yeah. There's not a lot here. I'm, I'm loving, like, I think even animation wise, it looks good. It looks quality. It looks the way you expect a Pixar movie to do, but it doesn't, um, 
bring anything visually new to the table. Like there's the monster world underneath the sea is kind of, kind of basic. Um, the uh, village scenes are fine. Um, I, I think one of the big problems with this movie is the antagonist kind of sucks. He's sort of boring. Um, he's really not threatening at all to the story. And he, he I mean, you could argue, one could argue that the real antagonist of the movie, you know, if you're doing the Twitter, like movie villain versus real villain meme, sure, yeah, yeah. the real, the real villain is, is uh, intolerance. And that's kind of the overarching theme here is them sort of like having to hide who they are and, and, you know, finding freedom. This movie has something of a, of a following in sort of the LGBT world right yeah, now. I mean, it's, and not... I think those parallels are not hard to draw. No. Um, I don't, I don't think that that necessarily makes any, any of this more interesting though. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think like once they're up there and the movie's allowed to do whatever it wants to do, it decides bike triathlon is the way to go. And it's just everything. The stakes are so low the the villain is so whatever the characters are kind of one dimensional i just didn't really feel anything I, I, I there was plenty of times in the movie where i was pretty bored and i was just kind of waiting i was like why like when is something going to happen like anything going to happen and and I'm into movies that you know aren't necessarily plot driven like that's we, like that's like the italian cinema tradition Right. happening. <laughs> I, and if it was better at doing that, I would be fine. But, you know, this to me, this is like the opposite of the problem we had with Soul. Soul was a movie that was all shoots and ladders, plot mechanics. And it got so buried in that stuff that that uh, the characters took a backseat to the plot. In this situation, it should be all character oriented, but there's just not that much there to go on. I think Luca is not a very complex character. And Alberto's maybe the more interesting of the two, but he's really just there to be a foil. I, yeah, I don't know. I just, by the time it was over, I was like, well, that was a series of images shown in sequential order to create wow. the uh, illusion of uh, movement. Wow. Okay. You are a stingy Grinch asshole. I, <laughs> I, I, under, I can understand some of your, some of your criticism as far as it's pleasant. Story. It's fine, but it, uh, I, I I completely disagree with you th with the animation. I think this is literally like new heights for them. I what? Tell me what? Like what? What should I be looking for? Besides, first of all, textures. I, I constantly forgot it was CGI. I thought it was stop motion. <laughs> like, I, like I probably would have liked it more if it was. If 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 um Ardman had done this instead of Pixar, it might have had a little bit more character in it. Oh my god. Okay. Now you're now you're literally saying uh okay, whatever. Uh I will fight you to the bone on this. The water texture uh, like when they're above the water is incredible. It is so good. Uh and that is a hard thing to achieve with with CGI. Sure. Um uh I I will give you the villain is a little weak. Um but that didn't bother me. I don't know. I wasn't like I didn't need there to be a villain like this really bad villain. Like I thought the story of these two little gay merboids 
was enough. Like I, I, I was very compelled by that. I thought it was very charming. I thought uh, Luca is a character. I mean, yeah, he's not incredibly deep, um, but they would do this oh, motorcycle. Uh, they would do this thing where, you know, like they would animate their imagination sequences. And that was a lot of fun. Like mm-hmm. the, the, they're flying on Vespas and, uh, uh, you know, dreaming about the stars being fish. And like, it's just so romantic and charming. And like, I don't know. That's, yeah. that's kind of enough for me. I just, I just wish they had more to do. I wish that the, the characters had been challenged a little bit at some point. They had to, he had to learn how to ride a bike. He's never had feet before, Cassidy. <laughs> Fuck you. Right. But that even, even the sequence like that, where he learns how to walk, he learns how to walk in less than a minute. I mean, it's literally just like a scene of, of Alberto being like, and one foot over the other, then you're good. Okay. Do you, do you really want to dedicate 15 minutes to him being in a fucking water wheelbarrow? Not necessarily, but I think we could have dedicated more time to him acclimating to earth life and, you know, just, just do any of the stuff that they're doing, but just go in a little bit deeper on any of it. It's to me, the movie is so surface level, like everything just kind of skims the surfaces of the potential of whatever kind of story they're trying to tell, get into more about this town, get into more about uh, Julia's father, get into anything. Like I feel like there's no moment in the movie where we really get emotionally into any situation other than Luca's want for freedom or for self-expression and, you know, kind of running away from his home. But even all that stuff is so like wrote Disney. Well, but I mean, it becomes about the relationship between Luca and Alberto. Like that is, that's, that's the key thing. Yeah. There's like an underdog story here. And they, I mean, they even go so far as to just say it out loud, but I just like, again, if do that story, but let's, you know, I just feel like the writing in this movie is it almost feels to me like this is geared to a younger audience than even your average Pixar joint. Like to me, this feels almost like a kindergarten movie in its, in its simplicity. I now for that, it would be better than most, but in, you know, the grand scheme of things and the Pixar canon, it's just kind of middling. I I mean I mean yeah there's so much Pixar that it's it's and they're so different that it's kind of mm-hmm. and maybe it's unfair. I enjoyed this more than Finding Nemo and Finding Nemo is like a lot of people's favorite fuck Finding Nemo that movie sucks <laughs> well, Finding Nemo um, does not suck um I I will okay I will say I think you there, could compare the two actually pretty pretty easily and I think that you can see why Finding Nemo at the time, um, you know, was sort of groundbreaking. And there's more, There's, I think there's more emotional stakes. And even the way that they split the A and B plot between Nemo and Marlins and the, they have the, the, the separate adventures throughout the film. This movie kind of does that, but doesn't really commit to it. Um, eh. I, w- I, I will give you uh, one, th- one, story note that I did expect to get a little bit more on and I did want more on was specifically Alberto's backstory with his father. I do Mm -hmm. feel like 
they set up something there that never paid off in any in any way whatsoever. So right. I'll give you that. Um, there was also, I think, something kind of weird going on with the grandma. I wanted to see, like, we knew she had this thing where she would sneak up to the surface world mm-hmm. um, because she would say, it. she, you know, like she would help him get out of trouble and stuff. Right, um, right, right. But other than that, I thought this movie was perfectly charming and and uh i mean i thought it was a a sweet little story i i don't know i i didn't need plot from it i i was fine (laughs) with them just sort of riding bikes and eating pasta and being little boys yeah it's whatever i mean i'm not saying that this is a bad movie or that there's Even the stuff that it attempts to do, it does poorly. I'm just saying that it's kind of low effort. And I don't, I don't understand. I know there are some people who are like deeply emotionally attached to this movie. And I'm just like, why? Because they connected with it. That's, I mean, that's fine. Yeah. You know, bless up. But I mean, especially like there, I can, I can see, especially with the LGBT community, why they are uh, so attracted to this movie and claiming it as their own. Sure. It's not, I think it's pretty thinly veiled uh, allegory. Yeah. I mean, but I think even just on that level, like, you know, stories about outsiders finding their family and, you know, um, coded queer relationships, things like that. There's more interesting movies, even within the animation world. I, I'm, this is the movie of the moment. So it's getting the attention right now. To me, this just feels like it could have been like a direct to DVD kind of situation. Like it's, it's just fine. I, I gave it a C. Wow. I, I mean, I will say personally, I liked the high concept existential dread of soul a little bit more. <laughs> and I per like, of the last few Disney Pixar movies, like I did, I do think the bond, the brother bond father story of onward was a little bit stronger. I guess I just, and and a lot of people are not crazy about onward. Like there's the, the narrative around Luca right now, besides the people who are shipping the characters and are in love with it. The other narrative is like, what's the big deal about this movie? More people kind of where I'm at with it. And they're just the overarching thing is like, is Pixar going downhill? And I don't think so because I really liked onward a lot. And I thought soul bit off a little bit more than it could chew, but it was certainly ambitious. Yeah. I, I haven't got that feeling. I think, uh, I, I mean, is Luca going to be an iconic classic? Like, Toy Story or The Incredibles, probably not. But I think that's fine. I don't think it was trying to be that. I think it was yeah. trying to be this chill little fish boy comedy. And I think it it achieved that. I was I was perfectly charmed and just found myself pleasantly being in this this movie. I didn't need it to be like super high stakes. Sometimes that can especially in kid movie animation where stuff gets so frantic, I get annoyed by that. Uh, No, yeah, I don't need like gigantic set pieces and I don't need like, you know, a ticking clock or anything like that. Any of the kind of stuff that you use to ramp up the stakes. But I would just like to see like the possibilities of this world they built 
be explored a little bit more. I mean, if we're, you know, if we're comparing it to something like a video game, it feels like it doesn't take very long to like hit the wall of the, of the outside of this universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just very, it, it's small and contained and intimate is fine. Intimate is Dragon fine, Age but it doesn't or, or... have the emotional depth to justify the, that style of storytelling for me. And right. I'm, and I, I get like in the greater conversation, the Pixar conversation, it's not fair to compare every single Pixar movie that comes out to some of the greatest films ever made. You know, it's not, it's not fair to compare everything to the first two or three Toy Story, story films. It's not fair to compare everything to Inside Out or whatever, or Up or whatever your favorite Pixar movie is. Um, these movies should exist and be judged on their own. Of course, that's impossible to do because nothing lives in a vacuum. But and it's, I, think, I think it's particularly hard to do with Disney and Pixar because they've always been the bar has been set so high and, and they've always been the ones setting it. You know, right. like they they are in a class all their own. And right. when when you do that, you kind of set it to where the only things you can have for context are other Disney Pixar movies because. Yeah. You're competing against yourself. Yeah. Most animated features just very rarely do we get that quality. Uh, uh, I, you know, like DreamWorks once in a while squeaks one out. Like I, Mm -hmm. I did enjoy the how to train your dragon movies. Yeah, I did too. Uh, I've only, I've only seen the first one, but um, I, I liked it enough that I want to see the others, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So every once in a while, like other studios get up there and sure. Is this, not as high stakes as a lot of Disney Pixar. Uh, yeah, I'd agree with you there. Um, there isn't this incredible, amazing plot. Um, I guess I agree with a lot of your problems, but for the most part, they weren't really problems for me watching it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, a couple were, but for the most part, I got what I wanted and what I needed out of this. Did you give a grade? Uh, no, I haven't. I I'd give it a solid B. Okay. I I would probably give. I don't remember what I gave Soul, but I would probably give it about the same as Soul. Um, I I think it was the only yeah. reason I give it less than a B because, like I said, functionally it's fine. I feel kind of mean even picking on it, but you should. You're a monster. <laughs> but. Uh, I give it a C because there were times when I was checking out when I was like, I'm not even paying attention anymore because I'm kind of bored. Okay. So let's go ahead and get into the streaming homework. Um, this yes, is I'm very excited to see what your cold ass dead 36 year old heart has to say about the princess bride 35. So where's we stream this off of Hulu, which is where it's currently available. It, it might be I on other it's platforms. It's actually only available on Disney Plus right now. Really? Yeah, because I looked for it earlier and I didn't see it on Hulu, but I didn't look very hard. Okay, so now it's on Disney Plus? Yeah. Okay, well, The Princess Bride is available on some streaming services. Be sure to check. Um, this is directed by Rob Reiner in 1987. I'll, I'll go through the process of describing what's happening, though I don't really have to. Everyone knows. Um <laughs> This is a high fantasy story, um, fairy tale, uh, told from the perspective of a framing device in which a a boy played by a young Fred Savage 
um, is sick and can't go to bed. And his grandfather, uh, played by Peter Falk, opens a storybook and starts reading him the story about Princess Buttercup, played by Robin Wright, and Wesley, played by Carrie Ellis. Uh, she's a princess and he's a commoner. So they're unable to marry, but um, he runs off and joins a, uh, you know, pirate league or what have you. Um, Chris Sarandon. Like a shipping, a shipping <laughs> vessel. Right. Uh, Chris Sarandon is the prince who wants to marry uh, Robin Wright, but he's kind of this uh, spoiled evil prince and she doesn't want to marry him. Uh, Chris Randon is actually trying to get this plot going to where she is kidnapped so he can rescue her um, or he hires people to kidnap her so he can rescue her. Well, okay. You are fucking this up, man. Am I fucking up the princess bride? Yeah. Did you even (laughs) watch the movie? You always Uh, take like 12 minutes to do the setups. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Uh, She's kidnapped by these three, these three guys. Um, uh, Vizzini played by Wall Sean Fezzik played by Andre the Giant and uh, Inigo Montoya played by Mandy Patinkin yeah uh, and their their plot is they're kidnapping her uh, they're going to kill her and make it look like this other kingdom killed her because really what Chris Sarandon's um, Prince Humperdinck wants is a war with this other kingdom yes. he doesn't give a shit he doesn't actually even want he doesn't care about, about uh, Princess Buttercup yeah. yeah. So then uh, Wesley kind of gets back into the picture to rescue her and it becomes sort of a rescue plot. Yeah. I mean, I, this is a movie, like you said, that's been quoted multiple times uh, through film history and is kind of like one of the leading meme generators online. And in some regards, I think it's a movie that, even if you haven't seen it, you've kind of seen it. Yeah. Like I, at I, I this point feel that with, uh, I, I kind of felt that with Casablanca before I'd seen it because it was just like, I'd heard so many quotes that it was, just, yeah. it was almost like a, uh, like a putting the puzzle of quotes together thing. Right. Like, Oh, that's why that there. Yeah. 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 So it, I also kind of felt this a little bit, not that I'm comparing the Princess Bride to Citizen Kane, but I've seen so many parodies and homages to Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of, and same with The Shining. Before I ever saw The Shining, I'd seen so many like other versions of The Shining or people like referencing The Shining that like it yeah. felt like I had kind of seen it already. Right. So what I think is kind of interesting about this movie and what it brought to the world of fantasy filmmaking is this unique sense of humor that is, it's not, I mean, it's a comedy. Yeah. But it doesn't feel as entrenched in, in it's not, everything's not just set up for a gag. There are, there are gags or a lot of big gags in the movie, but it feels like it, it wants to also be a true sort of fantasy family movie as it is sending it up in a sort of Mel Brooksian sort of way, but never but it, tipping it, it never full goes, up into satire. Yeah, it never goes that far. This isn't Robin Hood Men in Tights we're talking about, but it is yeah. fantasy comedy. Like, I I yeah. wouldn't be weird with this being in the comedy section. At, I no, mean, I think that that's yeah. kind of where it belongs more, more than anything. But 
but I think that it um it's well, interesting. It's, it's so genuine in its attempt to to translate the story because it's based on a real book. It it, mm-hmm. it is so committed to the fantasy elements that that isn't what they're getting the jokes off of. The the humor isn't ever coming from selling out the fantasy. It's never mm. coming from selling out the reality of the world they're living in. It it just comes from situational stuff. It comes from just the way the characters interact with each other. Yes. I mean, I do think there are, there's sight gags in the movie and it, it, it does. There, there, are there is some gags. ironic detachment from, from the genre, but not so much that like by the end of the movie, you are, genuinely interested in Mandy Patinkin's revenge story. You really want to see that pay off. It's not just a joke by the end of the movie. You want that to pay off and you, and they do like a full on uh, swashbuckling sword fight at the end of the movie that is interested in doing one of those kind of scenes. It's not just, isn't it funny that we're doing a swashbuckling sword fight? Yes. Um, But obviously like characters like Wallace Shawn and, and, I I would say there's a, there's a character played by Billy Crystal who's definitely kind of playing it more in that, in that Mel Brooksian sort of way. Yeah. He's a lot broader than. uh, Right. And he, it's a smaller scene and he has, he has um, less to do with it. So he probably, you know, wants to get in there and and make a splash. Um, And he does, and it fits in like, I think that's the, if there's any accomplishment in the film, it's, it's what it does tonally that's interesting mm-hmm. because I think I can't really think of anything before it. I can think of several things after it, but I can't really think of much before it that does this. Like I said, Mel Brooks kind of, but he's I, usually I much very, more committed to the satire. Yeah. I, whereas I think this film is, is, is sort of different. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it genuinely wants to be, you know, it has some genuine swash and buckle. Um, you could even say maybe like the something like the early Terry Gilliam stuff. I um, mean, there's there's some like Monty Python ish stuff in this movie. There's some you, um, you're comparing this a lot to very like very much like parody and satire. And right. Well, think about Terry Gilliam as he's coming away from Python into stuff like Time Bandits. Okay, yes. And yeah. I think that that's where you can see, like, he was doing the comedy with Python because that's Python and that was the brand. But when he's when he went off on his own, yeah, it was kind of a know. smooth transition because he was also really interested in the visuals. I, I get what you're saying now. Okay, yeah, that that's a better comparison than I, than I was thinking you were making and i don't um, think that this this movie is as stylistically wild as something like any of those films no um, I, I visually it's it's pretty simple it's pretty yeah. um it, i mean it feels it, it's general, just going right for those archetypes yeah in general i think the movie uh is very interesting because it's been a little while since i've watched it um mm-hmm. i didn't realize how much visually it is going for it, not high fantasy, but fairy tales specifically. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you very much get that with like these sort of painted back screens, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, you know, these 
like the set where they stage the swashbuckle, uh, the the first fight with Inigo Montoya right. is so sort of old Hollywood. Um, but I right. love it. Like uh, it's like a Errol Flynn kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, there it, there is a love of cinema in the movie, and it's it that comes through, uh, even though it's it's kind of poking fun a little bit at the genre. It's not it is trying to kind of have these little movie moments because, and we, we mentioned this last week uh, when we said that we were going to be doing this movie, I said, this is during that time in Rob Reiner's career where he just couldn't make a bad movie, like between um, spinal tap to a few good men. There's like no duds. I, I was going to say, actually um, when you brought up Terry Gilliam and, and I, when I, said you were commenting more on how the, the humor feels more like spoof and parody. I actually was going to bring up Christopher guest um, mm-hmm. uh, who, who plays a character in this where it yeah. feels like, and he know, plays it straight too. Yeah. He's oh a- my God. I, so watching this as an adult, I did not. Uh, I think he was the funniest character to me this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I might, my, my God, he, he only has a couple lines in this movie, but every one of them is killer. And I don't think I appreciated his character as much as a child because, you know, like he was just a villain or whatever. And there's yeah. so many great characters like Inigo Montoya, uh, Fezzik is, is such a lot, you know, Andre the Giant, even though it, it, with his voice, sometimes it's hard to understand what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a lot of really fun, funny lines. Um, so it was just one of those things that I noticed more this viewing than I had on previous viewings. Um, but I was going to say the humor feels more like sort of, you know, like one of his mockumentaries or something where it exists firmly in the world of this mockumentary. Uh, and, but that's where the humor comes from. It's like, what if this was a funny mock documentary? Right. Um, versus Amel Brooks, which is more, we're going to take a literal story and have, you know, as many jokes and, and gags as we can about that. Uh, right. I do think yeah. Mel Brooks was a little bit better about that than like, you know, Leslie Nielsen or um, some of the other, uh, you know, and then later on with like the scary movies that literally just right. spoof movies into yeah. just jokes and no sort of central Story. Right. Well, I, th- I mean, you know, Spinal Tap pretty much invented that mockumentary style for the most part. There might have been something that predates it, but um, mm-hmm. that that it's really was what the first big it. one. And then yeah. Christopher Guest going off and kind of making a career out of that. Um, and this movie is, we should say, for anyone who hasn't seen this movie somehow, um, that wasn't me. Uh, this is not a mockumentary. This is, but it, but we're talking about its approach to genre. Um, the reason why I, I guess, compare it a little bit to the early Mel Brooks movies is because he was really committed in something like Young Frankenstein or yeah. Blazing Saddles or whatever. Um, he was really committed to getting the genre details right. Yes. Yeah. And, and immersing you in a world, even if it was all just for the setup and for the sight gags, he really wanted to make it a big production. But I think that this movie, it, it kind of like takes that idea of like, let's build an immersive world that's that uh, we can hang jokes on. But 
walks it back a little bit. And that's it's that balancing act that makes it interesting. Yeah, I I I think I think honestly you can kind of see that with some of the Marvel movies that are being made to, to this day, you know, like mm-hmm. they're action adventure movies, but they want humor. They want, you know, they want to and some of them uh are more humorous than others. Like, right. you know, so the Ant-Man movies or or Thor Ragnarok, I think shares a lot of the DNA of Princess Bride. Yeah, certainly uh, Princess Bride walked so Thor Ragnarok could run. Yeah, and I think that's what I meant. Like, after this movie, you know, uh, playing around with genre like this was was not as taboo or as difficult or as hard to comprehend, and a lot of people were doing it. Um, You know, even Quentin Tarantino, uh, you know, infused a lot of comedy into his, his stuff. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I was saying like, after it, I think you can, you could definitely see where this movie created that niche, but it, at the time that was kind of unique. Um, And I think that's probably why specifically there's a generation of people who saw this movie. And, you know, I think that's specifically why it kind of stuck in their, you know, in our brains and our, in our minds, there's kind of a cult there's a cult appeal to the film because of that, because it's, it is so quotable and there's all these colorful characters in the movie and it it, it hit a certain generation at a certain time. I think, you know, that sort of fanboy generation, that OG fanboy 1.0. You know, I think it is also one of those movies that was trying to have a little bit of something for everybody. Like, you know, uh, there's also sort of this, meta narrative going on with the uh you know peter falk reading the story to fred savage yeah you know where like whenever there's something romantic he's like oh gross you know and like kind of interrupts the story you know because i think that there's this idea that romances can't be fun and funny and you know what i mean um especially at the time when things were a little more stuck in you know what this might sound ridiculous but I think maybe part of the reason why I didn't see it as a kid was because it was called The Princess Bride. I think that's that is very much because uh, I that's, remember that's when- that's ridiculous and stupid. But I think as a you know a little boy in the video store, you see the cover with like yeah, Carrie Elwes and Princess Buttercup, and they're just you know, and it's called The Princess Bride. There was like nothing there that was like this is for you. Yeah, I, I, you're gonna pick Dragonheart. If, if right in the or VHS whatever or, yeah uh yeah. not not they're not that close in time or the sand lot or you know whatever for the hundredth time i um, i actually remember like the first time i saw it i kind of had the same reaction i was like you know the princess bride i was like oh is this you know is this gonna be is this gonna be boring like uh, yeah. is this gonna be girly is it gonna yeah. be girly yeah i mean yeah. at the time at the, when i was a young boy like that was a concern. Um, right. And and we should say, first of all, I, I'm, you know, I missed out on years and years and years, uh, especially childhood, having seen this movie because it may be something like that. Now, I'm not saying that that was a conscious thing that was happening in my head, like, fuck girl movies. I don't watch that bullshit. No, like, but, I wasn't but, like that, but I just, just I, at the time, media was a lot more gendered, too. Yeah. Like, there was true. like. And, and I think that's. 
the boys was all about like race cars and extreme and slime. And the girls was like pink and ponies and rainbows and butterflies. Now that we're talking it out, like, I think, you know, that's another way this movie was kind of progressive because it, you know, it's called the princess bride. Uh, Well, they make the joke at the beginning with, with uh, Fred Savage. He's like, I don't want you. I don't want, I don't want you to read this to me. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole joke of the movie, really. Like, is is Peter Fox trying to win over Fred Savage, who yeah, thinks he's too cool end, for school, playing his his uh, sport video games? <laughs> Which man, those look dated. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then you know, by and, the end, he's like, "Could you come back and read this to me tomorrow?" Like, right, uh, exactly. So that's, I mean, and, and I, even by the end, he, you know, Peter Falk is going to cut off before the kiss. This this amazing kiss, you know, the, the yeah. kiss that blew away all the kisses in history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Fred Savage at the end realizes, well, he does want that. That's too. part like, of the story. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's a big part of what the movie is and what it's saying. I mean, it it directly uh, addresses that. So that's that's interesting in and of itself. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't have to I don't have to tell you that this is a great movie. You already know that. Everybody knows that. Here's the thing. Um, I know I'm going to say, I will say that I didn't have like this, this instant, like revelatory. Oh my God, this is the thing that everybody's been talking. Like it didn't like, like I didn't immediately become go from zero to super fan. Like I didn't, I don't have the history with this movie that everybody else does. So I don't, don't, I don't think it's that kind of movie. No, I I totally get why this was just a movie that was on TV all the time. And you would maybe catch it from the beginning or maybe catch it toward the middle or end. You just watched it and these quotes get stuck in your head. You see the actors that you like in other movies. And yeah, I get why this thing became what it became. I specifically would always catch this movie at the time it was it seemed like whenever i would come across it on tv it was always when uh uh wesley is climbing the rope and he's like oh yeah, yeah. like pursuing them uh cuz i remember as a kid like the eels were like a little scary uh, and uh you thought everything was a little scary yeah i was i i mean i think everything's scary in very different ways now my anxiety's <laughs> always been with me i know this now <laughs> right um but I always like liked it too. Cause you know, and it was like, I very rarely saw the part where she got kidnapped. I would see it was on TV and be like, Oh, I can watch this, you know? Mm-hmm. And you know, as a kid, I knew it was something safe. I could watch. My family would also enjoy that. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to feel weird watching this in the living room. Right. Yeah. It's a, and it's, it's a great like Sunday afternoon, on TV kind of movie. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's obviously princess bride, great movie. Watch it. If you haven't don't expect fireworks, if for whatever reason you haven't seen this movie yet. Um, but that's kind of not what it's trying to do anyway. So that I was more curious to see how you would feel about it coming, coming at it as an adult without children. Um, you know, like this is a family movie. This is, uh, a family, you know, it is, but it's also not, it's not, it's a family movie in that the subject matter, the genre and the, the, uh, content it's, there's nothing in here. That's P 
PG that that's that's like a hard PG or PG thirteen or R, but yeah, it's the not humor like saccharine is or anything like that. It's not so like right, but the humor is played for the same people who enjoyed Spinal Tap. Yeah, like if yeah, you if you he's bringing that sensibility to this. Like it it's not. It's not like, okay, we got to soft pedal any of this or we got to like really over explain the jokes. And he allows like for a, a tad of absurdity to yeah. uh, to break into the dialogue and stuff. So, it, it, you know, I, I can see definitely that was another reason why this movie grew with people. I have a I have a question for you. I don't remember if you mentioned this on the podcast or mm-hmm. before. But you said you had also watched some YouTube reaction videos. Yeah, reactors reacting uh, to this. So I'm curious, like, how did that go? Did did their experiences seem to line up with yours with this movie or or what? Well, I did it more just to see, like, if the punchlines yeah. were where I thought it were, where they were. Oh, okay. Um, and if they laughed at the same places that I laughed and like, obviously everyone points out the memes and everyone points out the stuff they've seen online or whatever. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of reactors for whom uh, it's, there's there's sort of a cottage industry and pretending you haven't seen stuff you've already seen. And then fair enough. Yeah. So I, I try not to watch the ones that are like that and I can tell the difference. But uh, yeah, no, I think most like the general consensus is this movie, you know, rules. Okay. All right. So yeah, uh, I, yeah, I wouldn't I, say that it really did much for me either way. I didn't get like any new insights from watching it through a third person point of view, but I just wanted to just to see if what the take the general takeaway was. Sure. I, I will say, you know, at this point I will watch this movie and it's like, I don't even really laugh at most of it because Mm-hmm. I'm so familiar with it. I know it so well. You know, it's sort of like watching Wayne's World. Like, you know, you're you're not gonna find anything necessarily that funny, but it's it's comfort food. It's it's right. gonna, you know, it's very like it, it's more these waves of nostalgia. I still get in this endorphin rush, but it's different than laughter. Um, right. Yeah. No, so I know I what you mean. That's it's just part of your DNA at this point. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an interesting aspect of it. The the one thing I will say is again, uh Christopher Guest, I was like, god damn, I did not realize how funny he was in this movie cuz he's he's very, you know, he's very mm-hmm. villainous. He's very um yeah, I'd, uh, say, I'd say the same for Chris Randon. He's really funny in this too. Yeah, but I always kind of got that. I always kind of got that joke a little bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's uh, just preening ego. Yeah. I do think, you know, Chris Sarandon, uh, based off of, you know, like Fright Night and, and other, like, he's got some good comedic jobs. Um, he's, in, he's an incredible actor. I mean, yeah. He, Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. I mean, he's amazing. <laughs> oh, God. The very end where, you know, he's just like, take a seat. And he just like jauntily skips to the chair. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're not insane. I'm not insane. Um, I did enjoy this. So the next episode we do, we actually have a guest and we're doing the guest's choice for the streaming homework. And uh, yeah. So if anybody has anything to say about that or any of the movies we discussed in this episode, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. 
Um, you can also follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at MacGuffin pod. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MacGuffin pod, uh, where we share our news stories and the episodes as well. Uh, be sure to check out my social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram at BC Cassidy. You can read the reviews that I do for the Idaho state journal by Googling Idaho state journal reviews or movies. Um, what else? Uh, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, whichever podcaster app you choose to use to listen to us. Um, and you know what? I don't say this enough. Um, I think most people probably hear about other podcasts through word of mouth. So if you're having a conversation with a person about what their favorite new podcasts are, just uh, tell them to check us out. Uh, so if you like movies or if you, you know, maybe you're talking about Luca and you're having an argument about whether or not it's mediocre, say, I listened to this podcast and they had this really interesting conversation about it. It's called the MacGuffin podcast. You should check it out. Keith, what's your stuff? Uh, you can follow me <laughs> on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster kid. You can also follow my art account at sticky note aesthetic um, for that specifically. Um, Comic-Con at home is coming up in the next couple of weeks. Last mm -hmm. year, when I sort of created this account, I did this uh, Comic-Con at home uh, giveaway. Um, and I plan on doing that again this year. How it will work is I'm going to, I'll do a post. Um, all you have to do is like the post and tag three people and you'll be entered uh, to win. I'll be giving one away for every day of Comic-Con at home. So I think it's four, four days. Um, so I'll be giving away four commissions. Uh, once that post goes up, uh, I just, you know, keep track of everybody who's, who's uh, liked the post. Uh, oh, and follow me, follow sticky note aesthetic on Instagram. So like follow and tag three people. Everybody who does that will be entered. I pick a winner at random. Um, so be on the lookout for that. I, I bet I'll have the post out by by the time this uh, podcast drops. So, okay, cool. That is the episode. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Bye. <laughs>